Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Core Concepts brought to you by EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group. Today, we have some special guests with us. Russell Tregonis. And Ben Covell. And I am Dr. Andrew Kitchen, and we are going to be discussing hepatorenal syndrome. But first, this week's show is brought to you by... Allergy Lists. Allergy Lists, the documented proof that 95% of all patients have anaphylaxis to penicillin, NSAIDs, and bananas. Allergy lists. Now let's get on with the show. Dr. Tregonis, I hear that you are a bit of an expert on hepatorenal syndrome. I mean, I consider myself to be pretty high up on the hepatorenal syndrome, not because I have it, but because I did a presentation once on it, so it makes me kind of an expert. Okay, well, for me, who's not an expert, I see the words hepato and renal. Let's start with the basics. What is this? I mean, if you've got hepato and renal, you've got most of the definition right there. If we simplify hepatorenal syndrome, Hepatorenal syndrome is just going to be liver disease in the presence of an AKI. Now, if we want to expand that a little bit, we could say this liver disease is going to be acute or chronic liver failure due to any of our normal etiologies, hepatitis, alcoholic cirrhosis, NASH, any of those things. But the key feature here is that this disease has to have progressed to the point that they've developed portal hypertension. So we've got a patient with liver disease and portal hypertension, and now we have a new onset AKI. So liver failure? AKI and portal hypertension. What types of things do you need to rule out when getting the diagnosis of HRS? And that's a great question, Ben, because you brought up something that I forgot to mention. Now, this AKI just can't be any old AKI. We see those all the time. The big thing here is that this AKI has to be acute renal failure that we don't really have another etiology for. With that in mind, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So just like you expertly pointed out, we have to rule out other things that might have caused it. Classic things we want to rule out here, make sure this patient doesn't have post-obstructive uropathy, and that's something we can do with an ultrasound, make sure they don't have hydronephrosis. We can also use that same ultrasound to make sure there's no evidence of parenchymal disease, anything else that could cause this renal issue to be due to something else other than hepatorenal syndrome. Other key features to look for, patient can't be in shock. If we have a shocky patient, then that patient's not getting good blood flow anyway, and they're going to get a pre-renal AKI, something that we can't have happening if we're trying to diagnose this patient with hepatorenal syndrome. And then finally, these patients can't have acute tubular necrosis. This is something we run into a lot with our liver failure patients because these patients often come in with pretty severe abdominal pain and we end up getting a CT scan with contrast. When that same patient comes back three days later and their creatinine is bumped up, can we really say that this is hepatorenal syndrome or might this be ATN secondary to the contrast? A lot of things we really have to look at. Whoa, so I think you almost lost me there. There's all these things we have to look for. Are you saying I'm getting a phena on all these patients in the ED? Drew, yes, you should probably get a pheno on all your patients in the ED just to be very complete. I've heard your diagnosis skills are a little bit lacking. But I don't for, even think I know how to read a pheno. It's overrated anyway. I mean, it, you're bringing up a good point here. So some of these things we're not going to be able to rule out acutely, but there is a very simple test that we order all the time and get back half the time that could help us with that, and that's going to be a urinalysis. We're looking for a patient to have no or minimal proteinuria, and that's going to be a big sign that they don't have leaky capillaries, they don't have something else going on with their glomerulus to be causing this renal failure. In addition, no urine sediment. I don't want to see casts, I don't want to see RBCs, I don't want to see anything else that might suggest that there's acute renal damage going on from some other pathology. 
And finally, the FENA that Drew brought up. These patients should be holding on to sodium. They feel like they're volume down right now, so they should have a low fractional excretion of sodium to make sure their kidneys are working well. So if I'm understanding you right, when a patient comes in and I'm worried about hepatorenal syndrome because I see a bumped creatinine that I'm gonna get on my BMP, the things that I need to get are a urinalysis that should be markedly normal, and I should also get a ultrasound to rule out hydronephrosis or any obstruction, and then consider sending off some other tests like phenine and urine electrolytes to help out our inpatient colleagues. Yeah, that's great. And Honestly, sometimes you don't even have to get the renal imaging yourself. If you're suspicious of it, there's a good chance it's going to get worked up as an inpatient. In addition, if this patient was seen a couple of days ago, make sure they didn't get a CT scan then or have a recent ultrasound that might suggest some other underlying pathology. Okay, so now that we've dropped the mic and we're saying, boom, this is hepatorenal syndrome, are all of these cases created equal? That's a very good point, Ben, and they're not all created equal. So with hepatorenal syndrome, if we're moving towards diagnosing this patient with that, next step is actually going to be classifying it. And there are two main classes of hepatorenal syndrome. These are aptly named type 1 and type 2. Type 1 hepatorenal is going to be the worst case scenario. These are patients who have had a doubling of their serum creatinine to the point now that we're seeing their creatinine greater than 2.5 over a period of time that was less than two weeks. So this is acute, pretty severe development of renal failure. Kicker here is that these patients have a median survival of two weeks. So these are super, super sick patients and patients you have to be really concerned about. Type 2 hepatorenal syndrome is going to be a very generalized definition. It's basically they have an AKI or renal impairment that's less severe than type 1. Not too many details there, but if we're concerned that this patient's developing hepatorenal syndrome and their creatinine hasn't doubled or it's not bigger than 2.5, then we'll diagnose them with type 2. And even these patients actually have a median survival of six months. So if I'm hearing you right, when you have a liver patient come in who's a known cirrhotic and you have an elevated creatinine with an AKI, you should probably be pretty worried. Type 2, 6 months, but type 1, which is that doubling, that 2.5 that you see on your BMP, that's two weeks median survival. These are sick patients. Sick, sick, sick patients. Well said, Drew. Okay, I guess I understand kind of what I'm looking for now, but what is hepatorenal syndrome? I like it. You know the diagnosis, but you want to know how we got there, don't you? Talk patho to me, baby. Okay, so the pathophysiology of hepatorenal syndrome isn't completely worked out, but like all things that are completely worked out, I try and find a mechanism that I like and I understand and I just roll with it and make that the extreme definition of the pathophysiology. So we'll talk about one of these possible mechanisms now. If we take a look at the generalized circulation that these patients have in liver failure, we can look at a couple of big features. And there should be a diagram attached here in the show notes if you want to see a visual representation of what we're talking about. Big vessels we're concerned about here are actually going to be the splanchnic circulation, which, in case you don't remember the old school name for it, these are going to be the vessels that perfuse your gut. So your celiac artery, your SMA, and your IMA. No, these vessels are going to perfuse the three parts of our gut, and then they're all going to drain into the portal venous system. They drain into the portal venous system, they'll eventually go through the liver where they can be filtered. If we have a patient with liver failure, then we've got a bad liver. When that bad liver starts brewing, we see all the complications associated with that. We see development of portal hypertension. We see the development of varices as the blood tries to find other ways to get back to the main circulation bypassing the liver. In response to this, our body does a couple of things, and one of the important mechanisms that it does is it actually releases nitric oxide, a potent vasodilator. Now, notably, our splanchnic circulation actually has one of the strongest concentrations of nitric oxide receptors, and this leads to these vessels being very responsive to nitric oxide. Nitric oxide gets released by this sick liver, the splanchnic vessels blow up. 
When those splanchnic vessels blow up, suddenly we have a large portion of our cardiac output running through those three vessels that normally wouldn't be that way. Now this on its own is going to cause a lot of complications. More blood flow going to the circulation means more blood flow going to the portal vein, more blood flow that can become ascites or go through varices, cause a lot of other complications. The big thing I'm concerned about though is this blood isn't going to the other vessels. The other vessels that I'm concerned about, namely here, are renal arteries. If we're getting decreased renal blood flow, we're going to get a decreased GFR. That's just the name of the game. The math is that the blood going through the renal arteries has to get filtered out into your glomeruli. If you have decreased blood going through, you're getting decreased GFR. Now, our body fortunately has a lot of mechanisms to try and help when we get low GFR. We activate the renin-angiotensin system, we activate ADH, and we even bump up our sympathetic tone, increasing our release of norepinephrine and epinephrine, trying to clamp down that splanchnic circulation while maintaining flow to our more vital organs. Problem here is, there's still nitric oxide being released, those splanchnic vessels are still getting dilated, and all of those systems that are supposed to constrict them are now constricting our other vessels, namely our renal vessels, and this is actually going to lead to renal failure. Very straightforward explanation of the path up is, I hope the picture makes a little bit more sense to you, but Drew, could you summarize that for me? What I got from this is, liver failure, portal circulation fills with blood, that makes sense to me. And then there's also a lot of nitric oxide that's going to your splanchnic arteries. What that means with your loss of colloid pressure from your hypoalbuminemia is that you're getting a lot less blood to the kidneys. Those kidneys are redlining it, trying to activate your sympathetic system in order to increase the blood pressure. But long term, it has the adverse effect of burning out the kidneys, which is why these patients do so poorly. Drew, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I, I did, but otherwise I wouldn't have been able to say it better myself. All right, so now that we've talked about kind of why this happened, what can we do to fix it? There's a very simple answer here. You have any patient with hepatorenal syndrome, you just fix them immediately by doing a liver transplant. Simple as that. All right, we're done. <laughs> so at the end of the day, these patients do require a liver transplant. That's going to be the only way you'll be able to reverse this pathology. However, as we know, that's not the easiest thing. So what other options do we have? Let's say, Drew, what if I came to you with a patient with renal failure? What would you do for them? Uh, probably talk about putting them on dialysis if it was severe enough. Ben, do you agree with that? Seems all right. So both of you guys are very, very wrong here, as normal. So dialysis, while it can fix the renal failure associated with it, you're not fixing the underlying pathology. These patients are still going to develop worsening renal failure. With that in mind, dialysis is only used as a bridge for these patients. If the patient is able to get a liver transplant, then yeah, we'll dialyze them until we get to that point. However, there is no survival benefit of dialysis without eventual transplantation they won't even offer dialysis to a patient if they're not a transplant candidate. So if this patient is one who is continuing to use alcohol, IV drugs, or has some other contraindication to liver transplant, these patients don't even get offered dialysis. And that makes sense. Dialysis really is, it's a bridge therapy, not an end goal. We don't want patients to stay on dialysis forever. What about tips? Tips, it's the magical fixer-all for all things portal hypertension, but here, it's not really going to be our best move. So while the TIPS does reduce portal hypertension, at the end of the day, it's a procedure that exposes the patient to a lot of other complications. For one, TIPS is a procedure normally done with interventional radiology or your GI team, but they do a lot of contrast during this. So while doing this procedure, they can actually cause worsened renal damage. In addition, while it might help the pathology, it's not going to reverse it. So the only time TIPS is indicated in hepatorenal syndrome is if they have hepatorenal syndrome and something else, like hepatorenal syndrome and a severe GI bleed. 
these patients will get the TIPS more for the GI bleed than the actual hepatorenal syndrome. TIPS is never indicated for HRS alone. Oh, so now we believe in contrast-induced nephropathy. Discussion for another day, team. Discussion for another day. Okay, so I'm a EM resident. I definitely can't be doing any liver transplants. What do I do for these patients when they come in? Role of the ED is going to be a very important role for these patients, and number one, two, and three is going to be identifying them. Fortunately, we're normally pretty good at this. So these patients who come in, often you know their liver failure patients or you have a high index of suspicion they're liver failure patients. When a patient comes in that sick, you're almost always getting basic labs and that's gonna start off with your electrolytes and your creatinine. So if we see an elevated creatinine in these patients, we need to start to be suspicious. Other things we can do is now take that next step. We have a patient with liver failure, known portal hypertension, now we have a bump creatinine. Let's get a urine. Let's see if we can find anything else that might point us in the direction of, is this hepatorenal syndrome? Okay, so I found somebody, they're super sick, we're concerned about hepatorenal syndrome, now what? So next step's gonna be what we do best, resuscitation. So these patients, we gotta get something into them to try and help perfuse those kidneys. These are actually the patients, though, where albumin should be your first, second, and third line agent. We often discuss colloid versus crystalloid for resuscitation in different patient populations, but these patients, patients with known hepatic failure, now with concerns of hepatorenal syndrome, we give them albumin, we give them a lot of albumin. How much albumin? I'm looking on the, the orders and there's 12.5%, 25%, I don't even know how many grams. So at the end of the day, there might not be as big of a difference between these different concentrations as we'd like, but I want to give these patients as much albumin as possible while minimizing the amount of fluid I'm giving them. So I like the concentrated albumin here, the 25%. Now the actual recommendations as far as how much to give is in the first 24 hours, you need to give a gram per kilogram of albumin. If you think about that, that's a lot of albumin. Each one of those 25% 50 milliliter vials has 12.5 grams of albumin in them. With that in mind, we're expected to give them five vials worth if they're a 70 kilogram person. So that's a lot of albumin. So in the emergency department, you can be aggressive. Give them one to two vials of 25% albumin to start that process. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, one gram per kilogram, but we're not gonna give all of that necessarily in the ED, two vials or 25 grams of albumin at the 25% concentration is a pretty good starting point while you're waiting for your consultants to call you back. Love it, yep. All right, so now we're starting to resuscitate the patient, maybe getting a little improvement. What do we do now? You've started to resuscitate the patient. I want you to resuscitate this patient some more, maybe even what might be considered over-resuscitation. Here we have patients with dilated splanchnic vessels and we're not getting blood flow going to the vessels we want it to go to. With that in mind, we can start using vasoactive medications to try and cause some vasoconstriction of your splanchnic circulation to better perfuse our kidneys. And what I'm talking here is I'm talking the good stuff. These are patients you want to consider starting on levofed, maybe giving them vasopressin, and even something like a triotide to cause some direct vasoconstriction of your splanchnic circulation. So is there any particular goal that we're looking for here with resuscitation, or are we just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at them? I mean, I'm always a fan of throwing the kitchen sink, but there actually have been studies that show some linear goals that we can shoot for. The more that we increase the MAP, the more that we should, in theory, increase renal perfusion. There have actually been studies that have shown almost a linear rate between increasing MAPs and improving renal perfusion. We want to take these patients and try and bump their MAPs up by 10 to 15 points with goal MAPs of at least 80, maybe even higher if the patient came in about at 80. With that in mind, we're trying to give these vasoactive medications we were talking about to bump that up. If I'm hearing you right, we're coming in, even a normotensive cirrhotic patient who we're concerned about hepatorenal syndrome, we've already resuscitated with our albumin, we're going to consider a presser, octreotide, 50 micrograms IV as a single dose, or starting norepinephrine, 
at 0.1 micrograms per kilogram with the usual dose of, what do you like, seven? Seven's a magic number. These patients need all the luck they can get. And again, that's assuming a 70 kilogram patient. Or we could consider vasopressin, of course, at 0.03 units, the standard dose. Of course, and you're saying or there, you can actually make that an and, so you can use multiple of these agents to try and improve this. Now, this might be a discussion you want to have with your inpatient team. Maybe they don't want this patient to be destined for the ICU, even though they are pretty sick, and you can actually talk about using oral agents, maybe even oral midodrine to help bump up that blood pressure while we're considering what's going to be the next step. Would you start a central line in all of these patients, or are these patients who you'd consider running in some pressors peripherally, at least until you talk into your consultant? I mean, I want to put a central line in any patient I can put a central line in. Of course, only if it's indicated. But these are patients that might be good candidates since you're going to be doing low-dose vasopressors to start peripheral vasopressors. Alrighty, so our resuscitation's going great. We've given them fluids via albumin. We've started them on vasopressors. Their maps are going up. Anything else I need to do before they get sent upstairs? Yes, yeah, so our final step here is going to be make sure we're not missing anything else. Though hepatorenal syndrome is often a part of the natural disease progression, we want to make sure we're not missing an inciting cause that might have put this patient in hepatorenal syndrome so quickly. A lot of times the most common cause is going to be an infection. So if this patient has a tender belly and you see fluid on ultrasound, I want you to tap it make sure they don't have SBP. You're already going to check a urine for the urinalysis, let's make sure they don't have an infection. And then maybe this is a patient who would get a chest x-ray I'll make sure we're not missing a pneumonia that's been developing here, and that's why the patient is suddenly in hepatorenal syndrome. All right, so there were a ton of knowledge bombs that you just dropped on us right now. Can we go back and just kind of cover the, the basics for our core concepts? I love the word core concepts. So hepatorenal syndrome, at its definition, hepatorenal syndrome is equal to liver failure in the setting of a new onset AKI. Right, and this is a diagnosis of exclusion, so we're going to be looking for other things to explain it other than just hepatorenal failure. The pathophysiology sounds like it's still being disputed somewhat, but primary etiology, from what we know at this point, is that splanchnic vasodilatation results in downstream changes that decrease renal blood flow. At the end of the day, treatment for these patients is going to be liver transplant. Everything else, including dialysis, is just a bridge. And in the ED, our goal is going to be to recognize these patients appropriately, start the workup, and then begin resuscitation with albumin. If you're concerned about these patients and you think that they might have hepatorenal syndrome type 1 or any other findings of severe disease, consider vasopressors like norepinephrine, vasopressin, or even somatostatin with goals of causing increased splanchnic vasoconstriction increasing your MAPs from 10 to 15 points. And finally, we want to rule out other acute causes that may have caused the development of hepatorenal syndrome, primarily checking for infection. Well, thank you again, Russell, for bringing this to my attention. This is something I didn't know a lot about, and I'm really glad that we know more about it now. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is your EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems the out.